Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology, with a dash of pop culture inspiration podcast. Very jazzed up, very excited to be back for another week of amazing conversation about amazing storytelling. And uh, we wanted to kind of bridge from last week's episode where we discussed the foil relationship between Buffy Summers and Faith in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. From that conversation, started thinking about other types of relationships in storytelling that are iconic and archetypal, that are uh, things that we see all over in many different types, places, and avenues of storytelling. And one relationship that is fairly universal is mentor-mentee, where the hero has a mentor that mentors them to get to the next phase of the story. Yeah, it's a stop on the hero's journey, right? It's present in Star Wars in the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi and his relationship to Luke Skywalker. It's present in uh, The Lord of the Rings with the presence of Gandalf and so many advisors to the hobbits and to the, um, the, the kingly figures in that storytelling. It's, it's present everywhere, and it's always necessary for our hero to have the inspiration and the insight of a wiser uh, character who has walked their path and can help to clear the way for them. Indeed. And in one major film and book series, the mentor-mentee relationship, I think, is very crucial to almost every installment. That is the Harry Potter franchise. I think this makes sense because Harry is a student interacting with teachers through the first uh, five, six installments, seven installments. He's a student. What uh, what book does he? Book seven. He he drops drops out out. in book seven. So yeah. yeah. So up until the point where he drops out, he constantly has teachers that are there that are mentors to him. He is also part of a family, albeit a dysfunctional family, that has mentors and role models. Sometimes the not not the best ones. But um, we started thinking: what makes a good mentor mentee relationship to Harry explicitly? So what type of mentor does Harry need to get him to the next phase of his adventure? What does that mentor look like? In this preemptive conversation, we landed on one character that we both agreed was the best mentor to Harry. Now, others might disagree, and if so, please let us know what you think. But to us, it's Remus Lupin, in particular in The Prisoner of Azkaban that that is probably the best, most functional, most healthy, most productive mentor-to-mentee relationship. So from that, we revisited the the movie. We didn't have time to read the book between then. So 
I think for me, I'll talk primarily about the movies, and that's kind of my Harry Potter comfort zone. Absolutely. I may mention some things that are part of the book, but for The Prisoner of Azkaban, it's fairly straightforwardly adapted. There are some details that were smoothed out and simplified, but the differences are not um, super significant between the book and the movie. And it's the third installment of the Harry Potter franchise, thematically, cinematographically, that's not a word, um, it is actually a word, cinematographically. I don't know. Oh, I didn't which, say it right then. I don't know which syllable has the emphasis, but it is a word. Prisoner of Azkaban is when Chris Columbus gives up the directoral helm of the Harry Potter franchise. He did the Sorcerer's Stone. He did the Chamber of Secrets. And uh, Alfonso Cuaron comes on as the director. You may know his name because he directed another movie we talked about at length, Children of Men. He is one of the most distinctive and interesting uh, directors out there and bringing him to a major block, block blockbuster franchise yielded some interesting results. Yeah. He was a bold choice because his most recent project before then was a film called E2 Mama Tambien, which is a sex odyssey. Uh, and with children of men also under his belt, he's a, he's a director who was known for uh, pushing boundaries and for often uh, you know, going past what was considered uh, appropriate on on the cinematic screen. But he's also known for one of my favorite films ever called A Little Princess, uh, which also came out in the 90s. Um, so a, f- a fascinating director with an incredible amount of range who was able to make deeply felt emotional children's movies as well as super riveting adult dramas. And I think he brings, I think you, you hit the nail nicely there and uh, hit the nail precisely as well. And I think he brings all of his experience and his unique eye to the Harry Potter franchise. I'm going to go out and just say, in terms of the movie experience, and I saw the movies before I read the books, I saw The Sorcerer's Stone and I loved it. I thought it was great and fun. And then I saw The Chamber of Secrets. It was like, oh, this is nice. They did the same movie twice. But that's cool. You know, like, uh, this is cool. I had a good time. No big deal. Um, probably not going to tune too much into the franchise if they're going to regurgitate. But that's, that's you know, nothing wrong with Chamber of Secrets. Then Prisoner of Azkaban came out, and I'm like, whoa. Harry Potter just radically changed in my mind. I'm like, these movies should be taken a little more seriously than I had taken them. And I was gripped in a Potterhead from there on in. Yeah, I, it was a major sea change for the movie franchise that was was growing along with the books. And I was 14 or 15 when that movie came out. And I remember even at that age being like, wow, this looks different. This feels different. This makes me feel things. I walked out of this and I felt like I had spent two and a half hours exploring the Hogwarts grounds, which suddenly were rougher, were more lived in, were more aged, but were also more natural and beautiful. And I had learned and seen these cinematic and um, uh, cinematographic techniques that really were amazing and put me into that landscape and made me feel like a part of the movie. So his influence on this franchise cannot be understated in terms of how it capitalized on the power of the story that was there and added its own depth of symbolism that it will be part and parcel of what we talk about tonight. Um, because, you know, the relationship to that story is crafted so visually and is crafted so symbolically, I think Alfonso Cuaron gave us a, a huge gift in his interpretation of uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Indeed. I uh, know you guys don't tune in to us to hear Derek gush and be a fanboy, but man, am I a fanboy of this movie, and God, do I like gushing about it. Well, before we gush too hard, I just want to say... Thank you for listening, and if you want to join the conversation, please reach out to us. We are available all the time on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, you can also head over to our website where there's blog content and other information about the podcast. It's www.midnightmyth.com. And uh, drop us a line there on the contact form. Make sure you head over to your favorite podcast listening app and subscribe. And leave us a rating or a review if you feel so inclined. It really helps us reach new audiences so that we can make the Midnight Myth community larger and more bountiful. So I'm going to say this, and I will say this as a preamble. I reserve the right to change my mind in the future. 
Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite installment of Harry Potter. Wow. I reserve my right to change my mind, but okay, okay, it is my okay. favorite installment. Has been for the most part, though Battle of Hogwarts, I still fanboy out pretty hard on. One of the reasons it's my favorite is because I think it really captures the narrative of what Harry needs to start his journey in the movie and end at a place where he is more powerful, more prepared, and more ready to face the challenges that the next year will bring. I feel like this movie, like the Time Turner, is a cyclical clock where Harry starts and ends in similar spots by virtue of the fact that a student starts at the beginning of the year and ends at the end of the year. But in that, the course of that becomes a completely different person. And I think Remus Lupin is one of the main reasons this happens. And I would like to start with asking you a question, Laurel, if you'll permit me. Please. Why is Lupin one of, if not the best um, mentors for Harry? I've done a lot of thinking about this, actually. Because Harry doesn't have a lack of uh, of role models in the wizarding world. He has a lot of characters that he relies on, that he trusts, that support him. Um, and he's got, you know, obviously Dumbledore is a major figure in his life and who is a character who um, helps him in his, in his development and who is extremely admirable and somebody that he can look up to. He also has some surrogate parent figures in the Weasleys, in Arthur and Molly, He's got eventually Sirius. He has Hagrid, who's a character who relates to him on a level that no other adult really can. Um, and Lupin, and to some extent McGonagall. Those would be the characters I think that he identifies with the most as role models or mentors. May, may I just interject? Did you say Snape as well? Well, that's what I'm getting to. Okay. Is he's also got a huge deck of kind of shadow mentors, if you will, or authority figures that he has extremely tense and tenuous relationships with. And that's kind of the nature of this character is that his relationship to authority is either you are a surrogate father figure or you are my nemesis. So in that case, we have the Snapes, we have the Dursleys, we have Umbridge. We have, of course, Voldemort, who's kind of the shadow version of Dumbledore, every minister of magic ever, and Lucius Malfoy. So we have many characters in positions of authority who Harry stands in direct opposition to and who he aspires to be unlike. Now, in terms of what makes Lupin a really powerful figure, and this is a fun thing to explore because J.K. Rowling has said many times that that's the best character she ever created, or that's the character that she loved the most. Really? Creation. I, I didn't know that. Lupin is J.K. Rowling's favorite character. You know what? That's like one of my favorite characters, too. I feel a little connection to J.K. there. Yeah, um, and I think something that is, is really remarkable about that character that's reflected in every mentor that Harry gets, but especially in Lupin, is that they're not perfect, is that they're not just flawed, they're not just naturally human flawed, but they openly embrace and uh, and J.K. Rowling is is not afraid to show us warts and all, every bad decision, every uh, wrong judgment that that character makes, and still present them as worthy of, of admiration, still present them as, um, as important. So I kind of itemized Lupin's... Um, Lupin's pros and cons as a mentor to decide whether or not he's an ideal mentor for Harry Potter. So breaking down the pros, he is excellent at handling a crisis. We see this from the moment he's introduced in the story on the train with the Dementors. He is right there to support and offer chocolate. He always has chocolate and he knows exactly what to do in a crisis to help people feel not embarrassed and as though they can carry on. He's also supportive, and he's a wonderful teacher. We see this in the first uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson with the Boggart. His interaction with Neville, I think, is amazing in the way that he takes the time to get to know that character. He's like, hey, I know you live with your grandmother. Tell me a little bit about you. He takes the time to get down on their level and make sure that they can face their fears in a productive and constructive way. Um, he's also dedicated to fighting the good fight, even that if that means going against the grain and not always following the letter of the law. So he's going to fight to get serious 
out of Azkaban. He's going to fight to support his friend because he knows that he's innocent, even though that's against the Ministry of Magic's position. So we have a lot in the good column here about why Lupin is a good mentor, but we also have some cons, right? So we also have that he's literally a werewolf. He's a character who is. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a con. I, I would have put that in the pro column, but pragmatically speaking, I think you're right. <laughs> so he's literally a monster who on the full moon turns into a vicious beast who can rip people to shreds. And while in the story that is sometimes set up as a way to consider him a marginalized class or you know, to display the prejudice against him. It's also like if you turned into a literal beast once a month and you didn't have a foolproof way to, uh, to combat that or to control it, would you really put yourself in a position to be living on the grounds with a bunch of vulnerable children no, and teaching them? It's too risky. I think that's I, I think that's not great judgment. So yeah. it's it's a bad position for him to put himself into. Very, very risky. You're right. The other con is that I think Lupin's priorities are sometimes a little bit skewed. Right. So I think one of his major faults that we see evolve throughout the series is that his dedication to fighting the good fight often comes in front of the actual needs in front of him. So later in the series, we'll see him nearly abandon his wife and child in order to fight alongside Harry and relive his glory days. And Harry will have to tell him, no, you have to go and take care of your baby. We see him uh, you know, nearly kill Peter Pettigrew out of malice and revenge without recognizing that that's the wrong thing to do. So we have a character who can be swayed so much by his dedication to that fight that he doesn't always consider the most virtuous path. And so with these pros and cons kind of weighed, I still think we have a really powerful mentor figure because we have something that is admirable and look up toable, but we also have something that helps Harry to create his own independent judgments, right? We have somebody that Harry can look at and be like, I'll take that good thing from you. And I'll also maybe try and work on that one natural instinct. Does that make sense? It does. You know, what's interesting about your pro and con list, and I agree with everything, and thank you for putting that together. One of the greatest uh, professional compliments and places that I've been in where I felt the most productive and the most useful is when I've worked as a trainer in different organizations where I've helped people do their jobs. Yeah. I think the mentor relationship pragmatically is about two things. It's about giving someone the skills that they need to succeed and inspiring them to unlock their true potential. And if you can do those two things for someone else, you can really matter and help that individual. And whether that is in a corporate environment, whether that is in a musical environment or artistic environment or in a wizarding environment. So if we look at Lupin, he teaches Harry the um, Patronus charm, gives him the skills that he needs to fend off the Dementors, who are really the like main antagonist of this movie when we come down to it. Um, he is there for, ha- for Harry you know, whenever Harry needs it to give a kind word, when Harry can't go to Hogsmeade, he spends his time with Professor Lupin, who tells him stories of his parents. And this is right around the, the holidays, letting him know that, hey, you're more like your parents than you ever could have or would have known, giving the emotional support and guidance. So he is there with the pragmatic skills, but he's also there to unlock Harry's true potential yeah. as a wizard. And despite the fact that he is afflicted with a horrible condition, which he calls it a condition. The idea, I think in the wizarding world, werewolves would be like akin to having a like debilitating disability in our world. You know, Right. Or it, yeah. Yeah. Like a, you could even equate it to a mental illness like bipolar disorder where you would have episodes that, that send you in different directions. Yeah. And so despite his faults, when we evaluate his mentorship, the question is, did he give Harry what Harry needed? Absolutely. And I would say he does that better than his other mentors. Though like Dumbledore's the great mentor that links through all the stories, 
Dumbledore is also using Harry kind of as a pawn in his own game. With Lupin, it's pure selflessness. I'm doing this to unlock Harry's potential for Harry, only to help Harry because I care about him and I believe in his potential. Every other mentor that we see has some sort of skin in the game. Or, like, Hagrid would love to be Harry's Lupin. He just can't. Right? He's just not capable because of giving him the skills. not really a grown-up, too. Exactly. Well, he, he would love to give Harry the skills that he needs, but he's not really a well-trained wizard. He is not necessarily on Harry's intellectual level. And it, he doesn't know Harry's parents, which is essential in all of his mentors, that they connect to his parents as a surrogate like replacement of those parents. Right. And so because Lupin is able to unlock Harry's potential and is able to give Harry the support when he needs it, I'd argue that he is the the most successful of his mentors. I think it's interesting that something you said uh, while you were talking just now about how all of Harry's other mentors to some extent have skin in the game. Um, I feel like another central tenet of being a good mentor or being a good role model is uh, sort of a dissolution of ego, right? So you can still be your own person with your own ego, but in that relationship, when you are engaging with that person that you are trying to inspire, that you are trying to unlock the potential of, you dissolve the ego in that moment. It's not about you. It's like when you said, um, you know, you, you felt fulfilled as a trainer. You didn't feel fulfilled as a trainer because you, uh, you know, taught people to be good, but you were still the best, um, or you didn't get just some uh, some pleasure out of being the best trainer because the people who came out of your training were the best at it. Yeah, you I were, didn't have a narcissistic need to collect students to propagate my own greatness. Like Slughorn. I, <laughs> I wasn't playing a like four-dimensional piece of chess to make sure that I use someone as a pawn to bring back my master, like <laughs> Mad-Eye Moody was yeah. in Goblet of Fire. You know, And I wasn't also willing to put children in harm's way because I thought, hey, I got to make sure that I protect my elder wand and defeat, you know, what I think is evil, but really is just another form of power that I don't like as Dumbledore. Lupin does it because he wants Harry to be successful. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's why he's his best mentor. Right. I, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it and think about what Lupin provides for Harry. There's also kind of a sentiment that I feel from the series because Harry is so surrounded by supportive adults. Uh, obviously, like I said, he's surrounded by um, antagonistic adults too, but because he has this system of grown-ups who are there to provide different services for him, like Hagrid can't teach him spells, but he does teach him like amazing empathy and compassion, right? No one is more empathetic and compassionate than Hagrid. And um, ins and outs of the wizarding world when he first meets him, which absolutely. was very important. Every single one of these characters provides an incredible service for Harry. And so there is kind of a sentiment of it takes a village, right? Especially when you're talking about raising the chosen one who, if he decided to go evil, could destroy the world. But if he stays on the right path, could save us all, could be our salvation. It does take a village to help someone come of age, to raise a child. Um, having this system of adults who all give him an incredible value, uh, I think is is hugely important to why Harry turns out the way that he does. Um, Agreed. But with regard to why Lupin, with regard to what makes a good mentor for Harry, I think there's more to it than um, than those tenets of just what make what makes a good mentor, and I think it comes down to there are some comments thrown around in the early books that are sort of done in humor. Uh, they come from Dumbledore, especially in in the the early books about how Harry, though you know driven to do the right thing, always has just like his father a certain disregard for the rules. And while this is said kind of in jest. Um, I think it's hugely important to who Harry is and what he gets from his mentor relationships, that Harry does not follow the rules, kind of as a rule. Um, Harry operates according to a moral compass. Harry operates outside of, uh, of certain strictures that are placed upon him 
and still is able to do the right thing. And I think it's important that we point that out. And this brings me to a piece of philosophy that I think Harry in some ways uh, tends to align with. Uh, and I think this because of Harry's general tendency to operate outside the rules of Hogwarts or operate you know, on his own terms. But I also think of this um, with regard to, on the whole, the relationship to government within the Harry Potter series. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. let's dive into this. Um, so just as a preface, I mean, if you're familiar with the Harry Potter series, you know that the Ministry of Magic is corrupt, kind of by nature. The, uh, the ministers of magic that we meet, Cornelius Fudge, Rufus Scrimger, and Pius Thickness, are all to their own extent um, not particularly on the up and up as politicians. They are willing to look the other way when some people commit crimes, and then they are quick to judgment when others commit crimes. So J.K. Rowling doesn't present a terrifically optimistic view of government and especially in The Prisoner of Azkaban, when the Ministry of Magic has placed dementors at a school where children as young as 10 and 11 attend, uh, who are completely impossible to control and who could suck your cell out through your mouth, how optimistic are we really about government? But this, this, uh, <laughs> this philosophy that I'm trying to work, uh, work into with regard to Harry is called natural law. And this is the philosophy asserting that Certain rights are inherent by virtue of human nature, they are endowed by nature, and that they are understood universally through human reason. Question, nature, capital N or lowercase n? Uh, capital N. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good question. N nature as in the nature as a like divine creation. All of it. Nature as in a divine creation, but also literally the tree outside our window right now. Um, that it's it's all part of the same thing and that there is an objectivity and a universality to it. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no worries. So as determined by nature, the law of nature is implied to be, as I just said, objective and universal. It exists independently of human understanding and of the positive law of a given state, political order, legislature, or society at large. Now, Natural law comes uh, especially out of a philosopher named Thomas Aquinas, or Saint Thomas Aquinas. He was a 13th century um, Dominican friar and Catholic priest. And in his philosophy of natural law, he was uh, essentially extrapolating upon Aristotle, whose works had been recently reintroduced to the West through translations from uh, the Islamic world. The Crusades. Exactly. So yeah, his, his work had pretty much evaporated, but it exists in uh, Islamic trans translations of the texts. So the ability to actually introduce those back to the West had an incredible influence on Western philosophy and morality. And so we get this, um, we get Thomas Aquinas sort of taking Aristotle's uh, natural law and you know, integrating it with, uh, with God's grace and with the Bible and with uh, Christianity. Um, but something that I think is so important about this idea of natural law is that there is a difference between a good man and a good citizen. So the sphere of individual autonomy was something that the state has no influence over and cannot interfere with. So there is no actual realistic correlation between the laws written down by a state, and the natural, objective, universal laws of human and, and all nature. Interesting. And from this, we can extrapolate that an unjust law is not a law, at least in the full sense of the word. So when Harry acts outside of the rules that are placed on him, when Harry acts in opposition to the, uh, the Ministry of Magic, it is because he is responding to injustice in the Ministry of Magic, which is prone to putting dementors outside of a school. And this had influence on another Thomas much later during the Enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson, who has a famous quote where he says, if a law is unjust, a man is not only right to disobey it, he is obligated to do so. And so I think there is this 
this incredible power in Harry to determine what is right by nature, what is correct uh, action, what is virtuous action, through living by cardinal virtues that he believes are universal and objective. And those cardinal virtues, virtues for Harry are courage, love, and justice. And if something acts in opposition to those, Harry is obligated to act against them. And the rules be damned. And the rules be damned. Because if a rule is against courage, love, and justice, then that rule cannot be right. And to bring this back to a philosophy of mentorship and role models, what is the best mentor for Harry than a mentor who lives by this, a mentor who is comfortable breaking rules that are set out for him, a mentor who is comfortable giving Harry the latitude to break rules as long as they are done in virtuous action and reason, and a mentor who is capable of accepting judgment from Harry that is passed through virtue and reason. Okay, so that was amazing. A few like thought bubbles popping up. Um, one, I think I'm in complete agreement with your analysis of Harry as a character as it relates to power and structures, that Harry is abiding by universal moral law, not necessarily the laws of society, which could be, and many times are in this narrative, very corrupt. Um, your your idea that the best mentor understands this about Harry and encourages it, I think one great piece of evidence that we see in two different professors. One is when Harry wants to go to Hogsmeade and his parents who are abusive and horrible and hate magic and they're prejudiced, refuse to sign his permission, his, his permission slip. He goes to professor McGonagall and goes, Hey, you know, like maybe can we work something out? Like, don't you know, I'm like, I'm abused. Like I can't do this. Not because my parents object to it. It's because I don't have parents and my guardians hate me. And she says, there's nothing I can do. It's not proper. I'm neither a parent nor a guardian. And I can't help. She essentially says, I can't help you. And I'm sorry, you're an outcast in this regard because this institution, which disfavors you for unjust purposes, I will have to perpetuate versus when Harry gets the map, the map of Hogwarts that shows every in and out and every person, the Marauders map and Snape catches him with it. And then Lupin comes And then Lupin sees and Lupin takes the map from him and Lupin knows exactly what map that is, but he protects Harry from Snape because he sees Snape as someone who's a little corrupt and probably won't be just to Harry. So he decides to protect Harry. He does scold him for the bad strategy. Hey, this map could actually harm you if your enemies get it. Strategically, you're not thinking straight, but he doesn't scold him for having it. Doesn't scold him for using it. He doesn't scold him for concealing it from Professor Snape. And at the end of the movie, he gives it back to Harry. You know, and I think when we look at those two different instances of two different mentors, both who love Harry, where one was the better mentor to the other. And I'm not trying to disparage McGonagall. Fantastic character. Sure. But the subject is who's the better mentor. And this is some textual, textual evidence that Lupin is able to align with what you say, that There's a moral law and a moral truth outside of the institutions of Hogwarts. And I will obey those and then obey Hogwarts as long as I can within that structure. But obeying the bigger laws is more important, which is more in alignment with Harry. Where McGonagall, it takes until Death Eaters run the whole world for her to join the fight. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and, and this has real-world correlations, too. This is like, how, what is the best way to influence young people? What is the best way to support young people in order to flourish and thrive? Is it to constantly enforce um, you know, arbitrary rules of like who's allowed to sign what form? Or is it giving them the latitude to fuck up sometimes? And, you know, making sure you give them the business and help them do it better next time, but giving them the, the space to make mistakes. Uh, and, and this is a very real debate uh, of how to discipline children. And I'm not in any way saying which way is a better way to raise your kids, but it's an interesting story being played out 
in the Harry Potter verse through the metaphor of magic. But we know which way is better for Harry. Exactly. And that's the discussion that we're having. We're not saying for all kids. Yeah, absolutely. This, we're not saying that this is what everyone should do for all children, but for Harry, this is really what he needs and really what he needs at this juncture. A great symbolism of where Harry comes from. We talk about the scene with the Marauder's Map when he's walking, looking for Peter Pettigrew. The start of the movie the start of the book is Harry trying to use his wand to illuminate a book, but he can't quite get it. And it just won't get quite catch. He can't do it. And it goes too bright and wakes up Mr. Dursley that it goes too dark. And then he can't do it. By the time we get to the Marauder's map as a benchmark for where this character has grown, he's now able to use it as a successful flashlight. Yeah. And I would submit that's directly because of the mentorship of Lupin helping him grow to the point where a spell, what was a challenge in the first is really easy because what is he working on? What's the challenge for him at this point? It's the Patronus fucking charm. Yeah. One of the hardest spells for the whole wizarding world. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that, that the, the imagery of that Lumos spell that Harry is working on uh, directly parallels the imagery of the Patronus, uh, which is, at least in the first, um, you know, first incarnations of it, takes the form of a great bright light, which is also a major symbol within this uh, this portion of of the franchise is combating darkness with light. Dumbledore says at uh, at the first feast at the Great Hall when they're welcome to Hogwarts, hope can always be found in the darkness if one only remembers to turn on the light. And that's how Harry, you know, combats the Dementors. That's how Harry conjures the Patronus. That's how Harry is able to succeed in this entire thing. That's how Harry responds to the anger toward Peter Pettigrew is with light, combating hate with love, combating darkness with light. And that he learns directly through Lupin and then is able to teach Lupin in a moment of weakness, which I think is incredibly amazing for that character. Fantastic. So a few things I'd like to pivot to, if you'll permit me. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the Dementors. And as I ruminate and think and ponder about this movie, I think in, you know, in reflection, I think one of the best questions to ask about Prisoner of Azkaban bookend movie is who is the antagonist? Right. Who really is standing in Harry's way? And I think this will hopefully support your ultimate point about institutions, pardon me, institutions being corrupted and subverting natural moral law. And the real enemy that Harry comes against, the real thing that stops him, really, it's not serious black. That is a misdirection. We are led to believe that this movie will culminate with a Voldemort, Harry, but rather instead of Voldemort, a serious black and Harry fight, only to learn that Sirius has been innocent was wrongly framed as out for vengeance against the person that framed him. And when we learn that, the thematic shift of what really is this movie about, it's about Harry finally trying to connect to a piece of his family. And that last piece that he has to connect to, his family being his mother and his father, the closest piece is serious. And once he realizes that that's the piece he needs to fight for and protect, he's willing to bend time, He's willing to master spells that he has no business mastering for his age and experience. The object that stands in his way, the thing that prevents the character from reaching the apex of growth is the Dementor. So I started really thinking, what is a Dementor in the Harry Potter world? How can we understand them? Why are there Dementors? Why create them and why implement them the way they're implemented in this story? It's pretty clear to me that the Dementor is based upon the idea of a wraith. I think it's really drawn upon the Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings wraith. Absolutely, yeah. A, a creature who is, you know, 85% dead, you know, 15% connected to the living world, who sucks the life out of everything that they come across. Um, even then, the, uh, the idea, the word wraith, it comes back from Scotland in the high Middle Ages around the uh, 16th century. It was first used in Scottish translations of Virgil's Aeneid, the Aeneid, about the story of Aeneas. One of the things that Aeneas does is he goes into the underworld. 
And the, the Scottish translation uses the word twice, once to describe a ghost and once to describe Aeneas himself. In those two descriptions, a wraith is something that's ghastly and white. And it's kind of, people have been using this word in multiple ways to both describe ghosts, to sometimes describe people, as well as to describe the ghostly shade of a person. The idea of a wraith symbolically, not literally, does kind of date back to Homer, who in the Odyssey, uh, Homer, I'm sorry, Odysseus goes into the underworld and he sees these ghastly shades, these reflections yeah. of these old heroes like Menelaus, uh, like, um, you know, Achilles, who all warn him that it's better to be alive at all costs. Don't ever get to the underworld and be the shade. Stay alive and fight for life as much as you can. So we can understand the wraith in part as a antithesis to life, as the thing by which life uh, stands in opposition to, the thing that which takes and sucks life from the living. It's unholy, in other words. It's an evil form of a ghost. This is not just your run-of-the-mill haunt. This is the soul-sucking, life-taking thing that none of us want to end up as. It also can be used at times to describe, as we talked about last week, the German idea of the doppelganger. Yeah. That if you see your wraith, you see your ghostly other, that's a portent of your own death. That is a symbol that you are going to face a horrible death soon. It reminds me a ton of that Abraham Lincoln story from last week. He sees his wraith. Yeah. He sees his doppelganger. So why does J.K. Rowland use this, this ghastly shade, I mean, J.R. Tolkien famously used them as the ring wraiths, creatures neither living nor dead, creatures without a soul, without an autonomy, who did nothing but the will of, you know, Sauron, trying to fight the ring and not caring who they get to or who they kill for that, that objective. The Dementors are described in a similar way by Dumbledore, unable to distinguish between the thing they're hunting and the thing in their way. So... One big question is, why the fuck would the wizarding world use these as prison guards? These things that torture and suck souls. It comes to uh, direct opposition of the idea of natural moral law. If you're using wraiths as your prison guards and as your bounty hunters, hunting down fugitives, um, you're using a thing of pure evil. It's no wonder that when the wizarding, when the ministry falls and becomes a wing of Voldemort's like legitimate autocratic arm of his government, that they use these Dementors to hurt, maim, and kill innocent people, because um, they are by definition evil. So, if the institution of the ministry is willing to legislate and use Dementors as a wing of their prison apparatus. They are de facto in opposition to this natural law. Yeah. Right? The very existence of a weapon so powerful and so uh, so de facto evil both necessitates, requires, and invalidates the idea of a virtuous government run on a natural universal law. Uh just having just having that in the universe that you have access to means that the government cannot be virtuous. And hence, Harry and Lupin must stand against the Dementors because the Dementors don't just come for Sirius, they also come for Harry. Yeah. Just because Harry is a one step too serious. And in that, we see the idea of the ministry and Hogwarts who accepts the Dementors to be the guests at the school year as corrupt institutions willing to harm people to get to the objective of one fugitive. So because of that, I think it proves the point that you were trying to make of the Harry needs to fight against injustice, even if society is unjust, then you must rally against it. And I think of all of the forms of civil disobedience in our own society. I think of all of the times where people have stood up and fought against unjust laws in the small or in the grand way and how each of those are really in accordance with the spirit that we see in the Prisoner of Azkaban. Harry's still a child. He still doesn't realize that he needs to fight both the Voldemort and the Ministry, but he's being prepared for that fight now. And who's preparing him for that fight? 
Remus fucking Lupin. Well, and this comes back to your question, right, about who is the real antagonist here? Because obviously it's not serious. We are, you know, we're given that misdirection, that red herring of the sort of spirit of serious that hangs over and looms over this story. It's not Peter Pettigrew because he's a passive participant in the lives of these characters rather than an opposing force. The real, the real antagonist here, the real villain is fascism. Uh, the symbol of which is the Dementor. The Dementors are these beings that come into your life and prey upon fear to exploit the masses and victimize people regardless of their uh, their morals or their just action or their guilt and you know, lives to enforce arbitrary rules that are in no way connected to the actual virtue of any universal law. Uh, and this is as you said, setting up that conflict that prepares Harry to be ready for when the ministry falls later and becomes, you know, under the thumb of Voldemort. This is, you know, the first real interaction that we have seen that sows the seeds of discomfort and doubt in institutions within the wizarding world and says, we have to rally to resist because we cannot trust the people who are leading us. And what is required to fight that is a willingness to break the rules, is a willingness towards civil disobedience, and is a willingness to dig deep and identify what your cardinal virtues are. And I think one of the big dualities beyond just darkness and light, beyond fear and joy, beyond love and hate in this, uh, this particular installment is freedom and bondage. We have Harry who feels trapped throughout his school year, who feels, you know, victimized by the Dursleys, who feels, you know, trapped inside the school when his friends are able to go to Hogsmeade, who feels as though he cannot express his true self, uh, who is then contrasted with Buckbeak, who's contrasted with Sirius, you know, good and virtuous men and beasts who are wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully sentenced, wrongfully executed in some timelines because of a fascist, unjust government. And so we have to watch Harry come to terms with the fact that not all authority is admirable. Not all authority is meant to be emulated. Authority is meant to be questioned. Even the rules of time. Even the rules of time. I'm glad you brought up Buckbeat because... Uh, the hippogriff is such an interesting mythological creature that's brought into this. And I don't think it's by accident because JK knows her history and knows her mythology. She does. And a hippogriff is a, a creature that has the front part of a griffin, the, the back part of a horse. It is said in Greek mythology that griffins and horses are natural enemies and that the binding of the hippogriff is bringing about two polar opposites together into one, and that the hippogriff, unlike the griffin, is a creature that people could ride. The griffin is unrideable because it is too wild, too powerful, and too mythological in its nature. However, though many claim that the hippogriff has its roots in ancient Greek mythology, there's not actually a lot of evidence to support it. It really shows up in the High Renaissance an Italian poet started talking about them and associating the hippogriff with Apollo, Apollo, uh, one of the ancient gods of the Trojan War and of ancient Greece and of ancient Rome. No one really knows if this guy made it up. Lots of evidence suggests that that's the first time anyone heard of it, so maybe it was an invention of the Renaissance. Maybe this guy knew something about the ancient world that none of us else, none of, no one else knows. But in either event... I'd like to take the metaphor of the hippogriff as a representation and a beast of Apollo, um, even though that, that may not be factually correct. Yeah. Apollo is a deity associated with most prominently prophecy. Apollo has a prominent position because Apollo can see the future. He's also a deity of tangible skills like, you know, musicianship, archery. He's also associated with pestilence in the Trojan War because he rains down, you know, pestilent arrows on the Greeks. Um, but his primary role in the ancient world was the Oracle of Delphi, where people would go and they would hear the prophecies of Apollo. 
He is the God that can see all. Because of that, sometimes he is associated with the Son, even though he's not the Son God, but because he's said to see all, he's like the Son, which sees all over the world. Right. <clears throat> so think of what Buck B represents, nobility, but not nobility in a um, medieval hierarchy, nobility in a natural law sense. I will show you respect if you show me respect. Virtuous nobility. I know I have power, and all I ask is show me the courtesy that I have power. That is the morality by which Buckby lives by. If you bow to me, I bow to you. If you don't bow to me, you might be a threat, and then I might attack you. In this, we see Harry respect the natural law of the hippogriff and bow. And because of that, what does Harry get? Harry gets freedom. He gets to fly. He gets to ride Buckby, and he gets Buckby as a friend. Buckbeak, pardon me, as a friend. What's this, Buckby or Buckbeak? Buckbeak. Buckbeak, sorry. Versus Draco. Draco is noble by birthright and by institution. He thinks he is better than everyone because society has told him that. But point of fact, he is not better than anyone. So he approaches Buckbeak and forgets about the natural law and is attacked. But what is Draco's defense to this affront? It is used is to use the laws of society by virtue of his position and prominence yep. to have the ministry of magic murder an innocent creature and get him sentenced to die, even though it was Malfoy that caused the attack on him. Yeah. An attack on his own person. This to me is the stark contrast of the Dementors, the unnatural creatures that don't follow a natural morality, who will stop at nothing to get their prey, no matter who is hurt in between. And to me, the connection between the perversion of Buckbeak and what happens to him and that he is sentenced to die for doing nothing other than what a hippogriff is naturally born to do and the Dementors who are patrolling, policing, and attacking the students is the ministry. Those two themes are connected by the ministry and the ministry's inability to be a functional and actual moral part of the society is the reason both of these things are happening, and they stand diametrically opposed. And it's no accident that it is the saving the life of Buckbeak which means saving the life of Sirius. Yeah, it it equates those two and grants ultimate freedom from that uh, that oppressive structure. And the ministry is is bound to fall because it has let himself it has let itself fall into the hands of arbitrary rules like blood purity, of arbitrary things like wizard racism, which have no natural objective universal truth to them at all they are things that were written down generations ago that are then peddled as ways to uh you know create more status and wealth for people like the malfoys which you know makes them ripe for falling into the hands of voldemort um i had a conversation today on a similar topic where i was just sad that the united states government put children into concentration camps and the response I got from this other individual was, I think that's being hyperbolic. I was like, what part of it is? Because those aren't concentration camps. The kids have AC, television, and snacks. Oh, my God. And I thought to myself, when locking children in a detention center, the debate is, you know, if it is a concentration camp, depending upon the temperature of the room. The amenities. The television and the food. And it was really like, I use the word concentration camp intentionally to illustrate the point of how wrong I thought it was. Yeah. The bait was, well, it's not that wrong. They have television. And I'm like, when we get to the point of, Hey, if the government gives TV, it's really not all that bad when, you know, we're imprisoning the innocent. And it thought to me that like, man, there's so there's something so fundamentally broken and dysfunctional here, whereby the debate is whether, how harsh it is to imprison children. And in many ways, the prisoner of Azkaban resonates with that conversation as death eaters surround a school. Well, they still have Hogwarts. They still get feasts. They still learn 
all of their, their wizarding. Yeah, every once in a while, Dementor might kill a kid during Quidditch. But, you know, it's not that bad, right? There was a killer on the loose, so you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, it's like how how many uh, how many rights, how many universal human rights can we take away while people are uh, being exploited by their fear? While we are driving home the fact that there is, you know, a killer on the loose, how many rights can we take away in exchange for that promise of safety? Agreed. Ugh. Well, I think this has been one hell of an episode. Yeah, I have one more thing I want to say. I just want to point out one particular moment in this franchise, if uh, if that's okay with you. More than okay. I can't wait to hear it. So with regard to um, Harry's relationship to authority, with regard to Harry's reliance on cardinal virtues and natural law rather than arbitrary human rules, um, there is one particular moment in this installment of the franchise, The Prisoner of Azkaban, that I think is extremely crucial to Harry's development as a character and the development of his mentors. And that is the moment that Harry chooses to uh, stop Remus and Sirius from killing Peter Pettigrew. This is an extremely emotionally charged moment. Harry has the person who's responsible for his parents' death right in front of him after dealing with this grief silently and without explanation for 13 years he can finally, you know, exercise revenge on this character, and so can Sirius and Remus, who feel the same kind of conflict and pain. And Harry says, no, don't kill him. And he's doing this out of response to his cardinal virtues, right? With response to courage, because the cowardly thing to do would be to strike this person down in anger. He's doing this out of his devotion to love, which says that all human life has value and is worthwhile, and I only act out of love, not out of hate. And he's doing this out of his devotion to justice, which says killing people is wrong. If I kill someone, I am just as bad as them. And the justification that he gives to Sirius is, I don't think my dad would have wanted to see his two best friends become murderers. Because he knows that through taking a human life, he loses those mentors. He can lose respect for those people who have finally come into his life and been people he can trust and truly look up to. And in this moment of responding to his own mentors, his trusted advisor in Remus and his godfather in Sirius, in responding to what they're doing with judgment, with sincere Uh, negative reaction with a moment of like, please don't do the thing you're going to do and being taken seriously as a 13-year-old boy acting out of pure virtue is something that is so important to afford to young people, to afford to Harry Potter, to look at him and say, that 13-year-old kid is telling me it's wrong to kill this person just because I hate them. And maybe that person has more pure motives than I do. And that's what makes both Sirius and Remus powerful and important mentors for Harry, is that they not only give him the latitude to make mistakes, they don't just provide honesty and skills and a lack of ego and an ability to unlock his potential, but they take him seriously and they take his advice sometimes too. I also like that in that moment, Harry would rather see Pettigrew go back to the ministry, which we've already established. Harry's learned of their corruptions. He still would believe, you know what? I'd rather see justice dulled out. You know, Socrates, when he was tried and found guilty of impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens, it is said that while he was imprisoned waiting his death sentence, that a group of his followers came to him and said, Socrates, you know, we can get you out of here. Like, we can go. Socrates was like, I'll do no such thing. And they said to Socrates, you know, think of your, you know, your, your wife and think of your children. He goes, well, I am. I pledged my life to live by the rules of Athens and live by them I shall. You can only do harm to me if you get me to act out of accordance to my own nature out of accordance to my own sense of moral right and wrong. 
And if I run and I escape my own execution and live, then I've truly been harmed by Athens. However, if I stay here and I drink the hemlock and I die, I die in accordance to my principles and no one has actually wronged me. And I think we see that moment in Harry where that he'd rather see Pettigrew handled by the very institutions that wrongfully imprisoned his godfather and the very society that has turned him into public enemy number one because if they commit murder, they have truly wronged themselves and wronged Harry. And that to Harry is his commitment to that, like you said, those cardinal virtues that make him such a great hero. And until next time, be kind. Lumos. Sound checking. Snipe. Snipe. Severus Snipe. Dumbledore. Snipe. Severus Snipe. Dumbledore. Ron. Ron. Ron Weasley. Ron. Ron. Ron Weasley. Hermione. Severus Snape. Hermione. Snape. Hermione. 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 Dumbledore. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Oh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Oh yeah. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. That's me. I'm Harry Potter. I'm Harry Potter. Singing our song all day long. Dumbledore. Look, I found this sauce with a mysterious ticking noise. Dumbledore. It's a pipe bomb. Severus Dumbledore. Voldemort, Voldemort, ooh, Voldemort, Voldemort, Voldemort.